Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of these Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug running and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. She was a little thing, her gray hair tangled in curlers, in her 70s and wearing a shift dress. She waved her hand at the man outside her door like a nosy neighbor trying to pass along a piece of gossip. DEA agent Prieto had been watching the neighborhood all morning. The five townhouses all looked deceptively identical, but he knew one was hiding a secret. It was the ultimate street game. Which cup hit a ball? Which house hit a fugitive? The old lady had been driving him crazy, trying to get his attention for 20 minutes. If she didn't stop soon, she'd give away the whole operation. Prieto quietly crossed over to her doorway. She told him, I know who you're looking for. I've lived in this house all my life, and I know everyone in this neighborhood, except the people in that house. She pointed to the middle townhouse. Prieto felt a flutter of excitement. He turned and walked around the block to the squad of Colombian National Police. He told them their moment had finally come. If they were quick, they might just bag themselves a Cali godfather. Hi, I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is the last of our four-part series on Gilberto and Miguel Rodriguez Orihuela, brothers who made up half of the Cali cartel in Colombia. This week, we'll take a look at the end of one of the largest drug empires in the world. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Throughout the late 80s, the war between the Cali and Medellin cartels claimed the lives of hundreds of cartel members on both sides of the conflict, as well as innumerable innocent bystanders. Bombs had nearly killed Escobar's family, an arsonist had torched Gilberto Rodriguez's flagship drugstore in August of 1988, the first legitimate business he had ever started. The Cali cartel needed the war to end. It was drawing far too much attention to their international empire and damaging their reputation in Colombia as the gentleman's cartel. Sooner or later, it would cost everyone more than they could bear to lose. The Cali Godfathers gathered to talk in-game strategy. Pablo Escobar had to go. He was reckless, hot-headed. The chaos of war was like catnip to him. The Cali cartel's head of security, Jorge Salcedo, had a plan. He knew a few British mercenaries who could do the job. Unlike the Colombians they had tried to hire, these men wouldn't be swayed by Escobar's promises of more money. Even better, it might draw attention away from Cali by making it look like some other nation had hired the hitmen. The man that stepped off the plane in Bogota on February 13, 1989, had dark eyebrows and graying hair. David Tonkin's tattoo sleeve drew attention immediately, singling him out as former military. Other than that, however, there was little to suggest that you were in the presence of a would-be king killer. But David Tompkins was much more than met the eye. He had been part of a team sent to assassinate the president of Uganda only a few years before. Once, after an explosion wounded him, he was admitted to the hospital with gangrene, only for the nurses to discover he'd left and returned to the battlefield the next morning. Tompkins had fought on three continents and was anxious to open inroads on a fourth when Salcedo took him to his first meeting with the Cali Godfathers. But he quickly realized that while they may know how to run an empire, none of them knew anything about murdering a man as heavily fortified as Pablo Escobar. After he was shown the paltry equipment Jorge had gathered for the mission, Tompkins explained the conditions for taking the job. He would bring in his own team of mercenaries. On top of expenses and better equipment, they would carry out the assassination for one million U.S. dollars. Tompkins expected anger, or maybe indignant laughter, at his price. Instead, Hilberto told him one million dollars was no problem. In fact, if Tompkins' men actually succeeded and survived, the cartel would pay them an additional three million dollars. Tompkins happily took the job. Within a few days, his men began to arrive in Colombia from as far as Scotland, South Africa, and Australia. So did better equipment, radio scanners, infrared markers, bugging and night vision gear. At the first meeting, the men dubbed the mission Operation Phoenix. The plan was to invade Pablo Escobar's palatial compound, Hacienda Napolis. 
They would land a helicopter on the only piece of land in the compound not booby-trapped with anti-helicopter wires. To prevent their helicopter from being shot out of the sky, they would paint it the same color as the military's choppers. Hacienda Napoles was used to military inspections. They were so common, housekeepers were told to serve lemonade to soldiers when they touched down. As soon as the helicopter was safely down, the strike team's order was to gun down anyone who came out of the house. Meanwhile, they'd use C-4 to blow out the front of the house to stop people from fleeing. Any locked door inside would be blown off its hinges. After Escobar was dead, the men would retreat to the helicopter and flee. If the chopper was damaged, they'd change into civilian clothes and run into the jungle to meet up at a rendezvous point. Tompkins and his men ran drill after drill after drill to perfect their strategy. There was only one hiccup. No one knew where Escobar was. Hacienda Napolis may have been his favorite residence, but it was just one of dozens. Months passed with no sign of Escobar. By the beginning of June, Hilberto discovered that Escobar would be holding a family party at Hacienda Napolis. It was the perfect opportunity to send a very public message. Hit him, hit his whole family. End this once and for all. But Tompkins refused. He and his men wouldn't kill women and children. Instead, they would wait until the guest had left, then circle overhead in helicopters, leaving Escobar with nowhere to run. Hilberto leapt to his feet and began clapping. He loved the idea so much, he offered Tompkins a $1 million bonus if he brought him Escobar's head. The Cali godfather known to sue rather than slaughter had finally succumbed to the violence of the criminal underworld. On June 3, 1989, helicopters left Cali airspace and headed for Medellin. For Tompkins and his men, the mission had gone on four months longer than they could bear, and they were antsy to finally strike. The helicopters were loaded to the gills with anti-tank weaponry, AK-47s, C-4 explosives, and enough heat-seeking equipment to put a small military to shame. Their plans were airtight, foolproof, but fate had plans of its own. One of their helicopters couldn't be used, forcing them to use a smaller chopper that was overburdened by men and equipment. And when the choppers arrived to the jungle just outside Hacienda Napolis, they encountered a wall of fog that reduced their visibility to nearly zero. Tompkins' helicopter crashed into the side of a mountain. The pilot was disemboweled upon impact. Tompkins' number two was so badly injured, the veins in his arms had collapsed. Tompkins and two others walked six hours through Escobar territory until they were rescued. His second-in-command would spend three days in the frigid jungle cold until he was brought back to civilization. Callie rewarded the men for their effort. Then they rehired them for a second attempt. Surprisingly, Pablo hadn't yet discovered their plot to kill him. But those plans were thwarted with the assassination of Colombian presidential candidate Luis Carlos Galán, 
who campaigned on reinstating extradition for drug traffickers. The previous extradition treaty had been suspended on a technicality in 1987. Galan lived in a bulletproof vest 24-7 and was literally walled in by bodyguards on all sides. Still, Escobar's sicarios managed to obliterate Galan and his security detail in broad daylight on the streets of Bogota on August 18, 1989. In the wake of such a violent public execution, the sitting president reinstated the extradition laws outright through presidential decree. Soldiers began patrolling the streets of Bogota, Medellin, and Cali, going door to door and arresting anyone suspected of working for the cartels. In the last four months of 1989, the Colombian government extradited nine traffickers, seized over $250 million of product, and arrested nearly 500 people. In those same four months, the Medellin cartel retaliated with 205 bombings across the country, claiming nearly 200 lives and causing half a billion dollars of damages. On November 27th, a Sicario planted a bomb aboard Avianca Flight 203. The 107 people aboard died instantly. Unofficial investigations revealed that only one person on the plane had been the actual target, one of Miguel Rodriguez's girlfriends. Another bombing took place in December 1989 outside the Colombian DAS headquarters. The explosion was so massive that it damaged buildings nearly 40 blocks away, injuring thousands and killing 52 people. It was the largest terrorist attack in Colombian history. The Cali cartel dealt with the extradition problem a little more carefully. Miguel summoned the cartel's lawyers together to draft a new constitution for Colombia that would forever prohibit extradition. But the pressure was on to do something more than protect their own skins. Escobar was tearing the country apart, killing dozens of civilians on the regular. The local community was counting on Cali to do what needed to be done. Unfortunately, using their British mercenaries was no longer an option. International journalists had gotten wind of the plan to murder Pablo Escobar, and David Tompkins and his men's faces were splashed across newspapers everywhere. So the Cali cartel resorted to other strategies. They successfully infiltrated the Medellin cartel with one of their own men named Jorge Velasquez. Velasquez was so convincing as a Medellin worker that Escobar selected Velasquez as their head of security for the entire cartel. Velasquez promptly used his new position to lead police right to Rodriguez Gacha one of Escobar's closest Medellin co-leaders. Gacha, his son, and several bodyguards were executed during the police raid on December 15, 1989. Escobar was crippled without his right-hand man and furious at Cali once he realized they duped him. 1990 began with more bombings and more slaughters. Over 100 policemen were murdered in a little less than three months. Then, Escobar began kidnapping government officials and their families. Dozens upon dozens of people were taken. 
Escobar's condition for their release was an end to extradition. Colombia's new president, Cesar Javiria Trujillo, had no choice but to negotiate. He promised any trafficker who surrendered would be given a lighter sentence and immunity from extradition to the United States. Escobar sensed it was an empty promise. But he heard that Gilberto Rodriguez was tempted by the offer. The entire Cali cartel was apparently in talks to surrender for a light sentence. The president's offer sounded too good to be true for the mass-murdering Pablo Escobar, but it would be extended freely to the heads of Cali. They had endeared themselves to the country by presenting themselves as benevolent businessmen. Escobar had worn out his welcome long ago. And the thought of his rivals getting off easy infuriated Escobar. He still blamed Pacho Herrera for starting the cartel war in the first place by refusing to hand over his friend for execution. If Escobar was going down, he was taking Pacho down with him. We'll continue the war between Cali and Medellin right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. It was a cool Tuesday night in September 1990. Pacho Herrera and his brother had gathered 50 men together for a soccer game. He'd even convinced a professional soccer player to join them. Locals had gathered to watch the pro teach the men his tricks. Music drifted in on the breeze. Coolers of beer and soda sat off to the side. No one noticed the 20 men in military uniforms marching toward the field, armed with AR-15s. They weren't soldiers. They were Medellin cartel sicarios. The men opened fire, laying waste to everyone on the field. Out of sheer instinct, Pacho and his brother sprinted across the field to the sugarcane crops growing thick on the other side. They waited there until the gunfire ceased and they heard trucks drive away. When they emerged from the crops, they found 20 of their relatives and friends choking on their own blood. Any thoughts of a peaceful surrender were clouded with vengeance. Policemen loyal to the Cali cartel found the farm where the Sicarios had gathered. The farmer who owned it was nowhere to be found, but three of the farmer's siblings were there. In repayment for his betrayal, all three of them were shot in the head. Two of the 20 Sicarios from the soccer field were eventually arrested. 
Pacho walked right into the jail where they were being held and offered their cellmates money to kill them. He watched as the Sicarios were stabbed to death in their cell. Four more of the Sicarios later died when a grenade was tossed into their jail cell. It took two and a half years for bounty hunters to track down the farmer. When they'd finally caught him, they brought him before Pacho, Gilberto, and Miguel. The farmer calmly explained that he had just rented rooms to the Medellin men. He had no idea who they were or what their intentions were. Gilberto listened patiently. He told the man he understood. No one had wished for this. Miguel didn't seem particularly moved in either direction. Pacho's face was purple with rage. Everyone, including the farmer, seemed to know how this would end. Once Gilberto and Miguel left, Pacho had his men tie the farmer's arms and legs to two trucks. For half an hour, the truck slowly pulled the farmer apart until he died. As 1990 turned to 1991, neither Pablo Escobar nor the Kelly Godfathers had taken the president up on the offer to surrender. No one would make a move until they were sure the government would keep its promise not to extradite them to the United States. They needed a true, legal, public guarantee. True to their nature, the Cali Godfathers maintained a litigious front, using politics and bribes to convince Colombia's Constitutional Assembly that it was in everyone's best interest to end extradition once and for all. Cali bribes flew into the accounts of assembly members so consistently between 1990 and 1994 that the head accountant for the cartel literally kept ledgers of bank account numbers in his office for easy access. Miguel sent the assembly his new version of the country's constitution. It's unclear if civilians in Colombia knew his hand was behind the new constitution, but most of the government did. Regardless, they set to work ratifying it. What's curious is that despite so many bombings and kidnappings, in 1991, 82% of Colombians said they opposed extradition. Perhaps they were willing to make concessions for a moment's peace. Or, since so many thousands of people worked for the cartel, they feared for their own fates if extradition was legalized. Escobar kept the last of his political hostages until the very moment the new constitution was ratified. Extradition was no longer legal in Colombia. Once extradition was off the table, Escobar surrendered to police on June 19, 1991. Of course, the concept of surrender and punishment was fluid when it came to a man so wealthy and powerful. Escobar was incarcerated in a prison of his own design, a palatial compound from which he kept running the Medellin cartel. As the chaos and violence of the cartel war cleared, the Cali cartel emerged victorious. As always, they'd used the distractions in Medellin to disguise their own steady expansion. The DEA and Interpol estimate that by the time Escobar surrendered, Medellin was no longer the lead supplier of the world's cocaine. 70% of the cocaine reaching America came from Cali suppliers, and Cali now owned nearly 90% of the drug market in Europe. 
With Escobar out of the way, all eyes turned back to Cali, waiting to see if the Rodriguez brothers would surrender too. But now that the cartel war was over and extradition was a thing of the past, they had no reason to surrender. They were now the international kings of cocaine. In July 1991, Time magazine ran a nine-page article on the Cali cartel titled, The New Leaders of Coke. Hilberto continued to peddle himself as a reputable businessman, giving only one comment to the reporter. If Betancourt helped in seeing I was extradited to Colombia and not the U.S., he was simply doing his duty as president, supporting an extradition order issued by a Colombian judge. Even with extradition off the table, the U.S. government kept a close eye on Cali. The DEA's myriad investigations from 1991 to 1995 are complex enough to fill several books. Much of their success can be attributed to long hours of solid, grounded police work, tapping phones, tailing leads, and flipping criminals. The DEA's first big break came just a month after Escobar surrendered. Venezuelan customs officials had alerted Miami to a shipment of cement fence posts coming in. They told the inspectors in Miami they might want to take a closer look at a tramp steamer called the Mercandian. Sure enough, when a DEA team tore apart the fence posts, they found over 1,000 kilograms of cocaine embedded in the concrete cores. They quickly repackaged the fence posts to make it look like nothing had happened, then watched the shipment for nearly seven months until Colombian men came to collect it. The DEA was watching so closely that the Cali man running the racket, a man named Gustavo Naranjo, spotted them immediately. As soon as he drove off with the fence post, he saw a dozen cars tailing him and DEA planes flying overhead. To confirm his suspicions, Naranjo called ahead to the warehouse, posing as a DEA agent. He told the warehouse he had an emergency to report, and he was immediately put through to the head of the team of agents gathered there, lying in wait to arrest him. With all the cars and choppers following him, he had no choice but to act natural and hope for the best. As they unloaded the shipment, Naranjo knew it was only a matter of time before they were arrested. He was trapped. When Naranjo was arrested, DEA agents swept into the interrogation room like a hurricane. They needed physical proof that the Rodriguez brothers, Chepe Santa Cruz, and Pacho Herrera were still peddling coke. After Hilberto's arrest in Spain and acquittal in Colombia, he could no longer be tried in the U.S. for the same crimes. They needed new, rock-solid evidence if they were going to bring more charges against him. The agents convinced Naranjo to place a call to his boss, Miguel Rodriguez. Much to the DEA's surprise, word of the seized shipment apparently hadn't gotten back to Cali. As soon as he answered the phone, Miguel gave Naranjo explicit instructions on how to break up the shipment before delivery and told him to expect another shipment of cement posts in the next few days. He didn't realize Naranjo was in jail or that their phone call was being recorded. In a little under a minute, 
Miguel had explicitly tied himself to cocaine smuggling, while the DEA listened in on every word. The DEA laid in wait for the next shipment of posts. This time, they got incredibly lucky. They captured Harold Ackerman, who the Cali cartel called their ambassador to the United States. Ackerman oversaw a huge swath of the distribution network that operated between Florida and Texas. He was involved with everything, from shipping to land transportation to distribution and collection. Miguel liked him. He trusted him. He called Ackerman at least once a day. After Ackerman was arrested, the DEA found hundreds of notebooks and financial records that he kept on the cartel's behalf. In April of 1993, Ackerman was convicted for smuggling 22 tons of cocaine into Florida. He received a sentence of six life terms. Turns out six life terms is exactly the sort of punishment that makes a man reconsider his loyalties. Sure, Ackerman had a cartel-supplied lawyer, so did Naranjo. But those lawyers hadn't been able to save them from a lifetime of American prison. By April 1993, Ackerman was ready to become one of the DEA's most useful informants. He even helped the DEA flip other cartel members. It was a damning blow to Hilberto, Miguel, Chepe, and Pacho. They'd trusted Ackerman far more than they'd trusted almost anyone else. Miguel was particularly livid. He was a micromanager. He loved having his hands on every detail of every operation from Columbia to Houston. He'd turned over just a bit of control to Ackerman, and now it had come back to bite him. The Godfathers were at a loss. They couldn't even retaliate. Ackerman's entire family was in witness protection, and because he was informing, Ackerman was in protective custody in prison. Even worse, a year prior, Pablo Escobar was once again beginning to rear his ugly head. He had taken up a hobby of bringing people he disliked into his palatial prison to be tortured. Once he was done with them, their bodies would be tossed into the road outside the prison and left to rot. It was a display of power, machismo, and cruelty. If prison couldn't stop his reign of terror, what would happen once he was free again? The Godfathers turned to their trusted head of security, Jorge Salcedo. Salcedo suggested they bomb Escobar's prison, raise it to the ground, and turn Escobar to ash. The Cali cartel actually tried that idea. But while they were in the process of trying to buy giant bombs from El Salvador, their plan was leaked. The Colombian government was forced to use 500 of its own soldiers to surround Escobar's prison to protect it from the bomb threat. They even mounted anti-aircraft turrets on the prison roof. Then, in July of 1992, with 500 soldiers surrounding his prison, Escobar escaped. A perk of having built the prison yourself, you know all the exits. He slipped away into the jungle and became one of the most wanted fugitives in world history. But by the time he escaped, he had few friends left and far too many enemies. It was only a matter of time before someone gave up his location. On December 2nd, 1993, Escobar was tracked to an apartment in Bogota. 
As soldiers swarmed the building, Escobar made one last ditch effort to flee across the rooftops, but he couldn't outrun the firestorm this time. Escobar's death was celebrated across Colombia. Civilians drove around their cities in long caravan lines, waving white flags and singing. They shouted, the king is dead, Escobar has fallen. A Colombian national policeman called Miguel Rodriguez to tell him the good news. Miguel leapt from his seat with a yelp of triumph and called Gilberto. The 54-year-old leader of the Cali cartel began to weep on the other end of the line. As a final gesture, Miguel, the man known as The Lemon, spun around and hugged the cartel's head accountant. This was truly a day to celebrate. None of the Cali godfathers realized they were celebrating their own demise. With Escobar gone, the entire weight of the international war on drugs came crashing down on their heads. Coming up, we'll explore the investigations that finally brought the Cali cartel down. Now back to the story. When Pablo Escobar was killed on December 2nd, 1993, Gilberto Rodriguez actually cried tears of joy. But with the world's most feared drug lord dead and gone, the Colombian and U.S. governments turned their full attention to the world's second most feared drug lord. Cali shipments were seized. Massive 2,000-man sweeps of the entire Cali area were authorized. Chepe's compound was raided. The DEA even opened a bank in Colombia and wooed the Cali cartel into using it to get a glimpse into their financial process. As the cartel moved money through the bank, the DEA could uncover where and how the money was being used. They discovered that Cali had spread its empire all the way to Japan, with hopes of expanding across Asia in the coming months. In 1994, a massive operation called Ocho Mil discovered that the Cali Godfathers had been paying bribes to almost every level of government since the mid-80s. In 1995, Colombia declared a national state of emergency after they learned that nearly every single telephone line used by government officials had been bugged by the Cali cartel. Later that year, the government dismantled the entire security department in Cali after discovering almost every employee was on the cartel's bankroll. You may be wondering how the Cali cartel could be taken down at all. If they own the government, the police, and even most of the general population, it seems that Hurricane Escobar had destroyed the Colombian people's last bit of goodwill. All the drug traffickers had to go, even the nice ones. The Cali Godfathers tried to reason with the DEA. They even negotiated with U.S. authorities, offering to slow their import of cocaine to America by 70%. Miguel's offer fell on deaf ears. That same month, a single shipment of 1.3 metric tons of cocaine was seized coming into Florida. Even if Cali cut back their imports by 99%, they'd still be bringing in more cocaine than the DEA was willing to tolerate. Their last port of call was the Colombian government, 
Miguel and Hilberto asked to take the government up on their old offer of a lighter sentence for any drug trafficker who surrendered. The terms of the agreement they drafted are a little complicated to unpack, but the highest possible sentence for the men would be reduced from 15 years to 10. No U.S. extradition would ever be possible for them. Hilberto even offered to bring hundreds of cartel members to surrender with him if their terms were met. Unfortunately, they waited too long. The country was still reeling from their last megalomaniacal kingpin, who'd continued his reign of terror from prison. Even though Cali had funded the presidential election in 1994, the new president turned his back on the drug traffickers who had helped to put him in office. By 1995, DEA and Colombian military had the Cali Godfathers on the run. The men were forced to slink from safe house to safe house, hiding in crawl spaces, cellars, and behind false walls. Hilberto and Miguel were terrified that they'd be gunned down like Escobar was. On June 9, 1995, DEA agent Ruben Prieto and men from the National Police tracked Hilberto to a row of townhouses in Cali. With the help of a tip from the elderly lady across the street, the DEA moved in to take him down. Hilberto's girlfriend answered the door. Behind her, Prieto could see one of Hilberto's trusted lieutenants waiting in the wings. The police came in and began their search immediately. Prieto searched an upstairs bedroom, where he found a young officer trying to pry a big-screen television from the wall. As Prieto lent a hand, he heard the surprising click of a false wall opening behind it. The door swung wide on its hinges. Loose cash fluttered out on the breeze. Prieto came face to face with a stocky man clad only in his underwear, holding pistols in both hands. It was the chess player himself, Hilberto Rodriguez Orihuela. Prieto froze as he heard Colombian police enter the room behind him. They yelled for Hilberto to come out, hands raised. They couldn't see the pistols in his hands, pointed right at Prieto's face. Hilberto's skittish voice called out, Don't shoot. I am a man of peace. He dropped his pistols to the floor and was captured without a fight. Once Hilberto was taken down, pieces of the empire began to crumble. The cartel's so-called Minister of War surrendered 10 days after Hilberto's capture. Their Sicario leader surrendered five days after that. Miguel put up more of a chase. He seemed to slip effortlessly between the cracks until he was ultimately betrayed by the cartel's head of security, Jorge Salcedo. A Navy SEAL battered down the door of Miguel's apartment with a sledgehammer on August 6, 1995. They spotted the Godfather just before he slipped into a small hiding spot. Inside a nearby filing cabinet, they found an oxygen tank, water, snacks, and a copy of Colombia's penal code. Without the weight of the cartel protecting him, Chepe Santa Cruz was captured by a greedy paramilitary leader who tortured him for information about where he had stashed money. When Chepe wouldn't talk, the paramilitary leader killed him and turned his body in for the reward money. 
Pacho surrendered and became an informant on September 1, 1996. He would be brutally assassinated two years later while serving a six-year prison sentence. As the rest of the Cali elite were captured and imprisoned, Hilberto and Miguel continued to manage a smaller but no less active cocaine empire from prison. Their cells were expanded to give them room and furnished with the latest in stereo equipment, carpeting, and even cable TV. French wine and scotch were tucked away in a curio cabinet for visitors. Miguel even opened a small kiosk while in prison, selling soda, chocolates, and painkillers to other prisoners. Funnily enough, this qualified him for a reduction in his prison sentence. Both men were facing up to 24 years, but when they were eventually convicted in 1997, Hilberto was given 10 and a half years while Miguel received nine. They escaped extradition, since a new extradition law didn't go into effect until after they were sentenced. Not such a bad price to pay. Their punishment was the equivalent of being trapped on a luxury cruise liner for a decade. Hilberto was freed for good behavior on November 2, 2002, at the age of 63. He'd only been in prison for seven years total. Needless to say, the United States wasn't satisfied with such slight punishments. The U.S. began pressing charges against the brothers' family members, and in 2004, both men agreed to be extradited to America in exchange for the immunity of their families. Hilberto and Miguel both pleaded guilty to conspiracy to import cocaine. They agreed to forfeit $2.1 billion in assets, including Hilberto's entire drugstore chain. With the Rodriguez brothers locked up for good, the Cali cartel's reign was officially defunct. The kingpins may have been toppled, but their power vacuum didn't go unfilled. In the years since the rise and fall of Colombia's mega-cartels, the country's cocaine trade has fallen to smaller, right-wing, paramilitary groups that use drug money to fund their guerrilla movements. Hilberto and Miguel Rodriguez Orihuela remain in prison to this day. Hilberto is serving his sentence at FCC Butner in North Carolina, Miguel at FCI Edgefield in South Carolina. The rise and fall of their empire was epic, impressive, destructive, and selfish. Yet they ended their reign with peace and dignity, befitting the reputation they built as the Gentleman's Cartel. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. 
Kingpins is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>